1: what is a planet? How does a planet become a place? How have different planets become different places in different ways, in different times and different spaces? And why does it matter? What are the consequences for making planets into places, not just for how we understand the universe, how we understand potential other worlds, but also how we understand our world and how we understand ourselves? I'm Carla Nappi, and in the course of the next hour here on New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, we're going to explore these questions. We're going to explore them through a conversation with Lisa Masseri, the author of a recent book called Placing Outer Space, An Earthly Ethnography of Other Worlds. This came out with Duke University Press in 2016. Now, this is a study based on really interesting ethnographic methods that take us into different sites of placemaking. And these different sites um, include the deserts of Utah. They include observatories, Silicon Valley and beyond laboratories, um, all kinds of different spaces where planets have been made into places. Now, this becomes super, super fascinating for lots of reasons. And even if you're not like, deeply interested in ethnographic methods and ethnographies in terms of STS, if you're interested in uh, news stories and media coverage and the idea of other worlds and how stories about the habitability of other worlds emerge and what the science of that looks like, but also how we understand uh, Mars based on research that happens on Earth, how we understand Earth based on research into other planets. This is a book for you. It's really, really fascinating. So I'll let you get to it. It's a pretty extensive interview, Um, but I'll just say I hope you have a chance to also get your hands on a copy of the book because there's a lot of really powerful images in here that are an important part of the story. And also, I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. Thank you you so much for listening and thanks for your support of the channel and here goes i'm here today to talk with lisa masseri about her new book placing outer space an earthly ethnography of other worlds welcome to the new books in sts podcast lisa thank you so much first for writing a super fascinating book second for making time to talk with me about it today welcome to the podcast Thank you, Carla. Thanks for making time for me as well. Of course. So let's start with a big, broad, traditional question. What brought you to science studies, Lisa? How did you focus on this or come to focus on science studies as an academic field?
0: So I, I feel like I have this origin story that I have told and I shall tell one more time. <laughs> <Yay>. uh, <laughs> so I was an engineering undergrad. And uh, always really loved science and engineering. But as I approached graduation, I just couldn't see myself being an engineer and the work that that entailed. And my second semester, senior year, I was fulfilling my last humanities distributed requirement. And I took the introduction to history of science. And it was by far one of the most transformative classes I've ever taken because after studying science and technology for four years as an undergrad, I was blown away by the fact that science had a history, that it wasn't this static thing. Thing. Um, and that really is what put me on the path that I wanted to stay involved in science, but I didn't want to be a scientist. And so being someone who could hang out with scientists and write about them became this amazing profession that I'm so glad I stumbled upon.
1: So why these particular scientists? Why scientists working on Mars and on exoplanets? And basically, how did you come to work on this particular topic as a focus for your first book?
0: I always loved astronomy. I did astrophysics summer camp when I was in high school. And when I went to college, I majored in aerospace engineering, kind of to keep space as part of my life. Um, and so when I went to grad school, everyone's advice was pick something that you love, pick something that you have a passion for. And it had been actually a couple of years since I had seriously done anything with outer space. Um, and so I started thinking about, okay, well, what would a project – that brings me back to some of these early passions of mine look like. And I happened also to have a roommate at the time who was studying planetary science also at MIT, which is where I did my doctoral work. And so I was kind of seeing some of the cutting edge research she was doing. And at the same time I was fishing around for um, a dissertation project. And so it was um, a very natural fit in a lot of ways.
1: Very cool. So this is a book that actually started out as a dissertation project. So let's talk about that transformation a little bit. When you moved the book from dissertation to book, were there any kind of significant, noteworthy, um, kind of major or minor in a noteworthy way uh, (laughs) changes in the project, like either in the shape of the project or in the way you were kind of conceptualizing it?
0: Yes, um, I, you know, I refuse to read my dissertation. So I think that, uh, I'd probably be <laughs> shocked at how different they are, even though the title is the same and like the names of some of the chapters are the same. What stayed the same before I say what, um, changed was that it, the same four chapters existed. I had four field sites and they mapped onto four chapters in which I was making four kind of distinct points. What changed was the order of the chapters, the points I was making in the chapters, and to some extent, the overall framing of the book, both in the introduction and the conclusion. In particular, um, you know, the review process is amazing. And I had the fortune of really careful readers to give me advice and suggestions on the big picture of the book. And so they helped me figure out ways to tie together the different chapters. And as I'm sure we'll talk about themes like the planetary imagination came out in the revision process when it wasn't in the dissertation, which was a theme that links all the chapters, as well as really pushing me to answer the question of if I don't care about planetary science, why should I care about this book?
1: So since you've brought us there, Lisa, let's start Um, with something you just mentioned the planetary imagination right why not dive in um, right there (laughs) Um, so as we now dive into the book um, as uh, as a kind of space as a landscape to explore um, let's dive in here what is the planetary imagination for you and how is this significant to the kind of work that the book is doing
0: so I was I Looked at a lot of different kinds of scientists, even though I roughly call them all planetary scientists. Some of them are geologists. Some of them are computer scientists, some astronomers, some astrophysicists. And it was very important to me to figure out how this community hangs together when maybe even they themselves wouldn't think of themselves as a community as such. And so the question was, well, given all these different scientific approaches, what is the one common theme thing that they are doing? And they are all pursuing this thing we call a planet. But planets are vastly different. Earth is different from Mars, is different from Jupiter, is different from all these exoplanets we're finding. And so the question is the question I was asking is, okay, well, what is so what is the planetary um, how do we understand it as a thing that can come to stand for all these discrete objects? And um, I answer that question in a number of different ways in the book, but one of the ways is through this idea of the planetary imagination, which I use as a stand in for a more clunky idea of the placehood of planets, of thinking about these planets as places we can be on. And so each um, encounter I have, I then began asking, well, how are they contributing to the planetary imagination? And is there is there, in fact, a planetary imagination that hangs together across all these different groups?
1: And in fact, right in the introduction, um, the book raises this question, right? And specifically, um, it asks is, asks us to ask ourselves, what kind of object is a planet, right? And you talk about the way that a planet, um, relative to other kinds of objects that have been discussed in science studies literature and other kinds of literatures, is an object that's both quotidian and scientific, but it's also, as you just um, were indicating, more than an object, right? Planets um, are also places, you talk about the ways that scientific practice in the words of the book transforms planets from objects into places. Okay. So what does this do to the notion of place, right? To describe mm-hmm. a place in terms of this kind of planetary scale.
0: Yes. So that is that is the fundamental curiosity I have both in this work and all of my research is this idea of place. Um, what is place. And one of the reasons I thought it would be interesting to ask that question in conjunction with planetary science is that it forces us to push place to these large geographical limits. Is in fact place something that can that we can say is an attribute of the planetary. So in asking what is the planetary and what is the place together, the idea is to kind of create this tension between the two to see if you can see one in the other. Can you see place in the planetary and the planetary as a place? Um, so that became kind of the opening question that I was asking, which I think what it does in terms of us thinking about place is it asks us to kind of ungird place from the local that we often connect it to. And if we do that, then it's kind of like we've made place alien and we can begin maybe to see it with new eyes in terms of what place does for us socially, philosophically, um, scientifically.
1: Awesome. So the book does this in very specific ways, um, and we'll start getting into those now. Um, just to kind of lay the foundation a little bit for listeners. The book is an ethnography and it's based on, as you describe in the introduction, 15 months roughly of participant observation in 2009 and 2010. Um, And this included all kinds of work um, that you describe in the book, interviews, conferences, involvement in different kinds of research projects and pedagogical training, email exchanges, informal chats, and lots and lots more. So we'll talk about some of the specifics when we get into the chapters. Now the chapters track activities of placemaking as we've just been um, talking about, at different field sites. And these activities of placemaking, there are four major named activities, and they form um, the core of the argument of each one of these four chapters, narrating, mapping, visualizing, and inhabiting. And we'll talk about these in turn. So first, let's look at narrating. Now, chapter one takes place um, and takes us into the place of the simulated Mars habitat of the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. Now, here, as you show us, um, in different ways, it's super, super fascinating. Earth itself is transformed into a Martian place. This chapter shows the way, um, in the words of the book, planetary place is made on Earth by using narrative to bridge the scales of the planetary and the local. And it tracks four stories that order the landscapes here and that weave together different kinds of time and and, uh, approaches to time, past, present, and future. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So one of the kinds of stories is the geological. Another is the astrogeological, the areological, and science fiction. So I'm gonna ask you to talk kind of in detail about a couple of these. One of the really interesting things that happens for me in this chapter um, happens when you take us into the kind of astrogeological story um, that's Mm. happening at this site, right? Um, You talk about, in various ways, the significance of the ideas of the American frontier, um, the figure of the cowboy astronaut. It's really, really, really interesting. So, Lisa, could you talk a little bit about um, the kind of astrogeological sort of... Of narrative that's ordering the landscape? What's for you interesting and important about what's going on here?
0: Yeah, um, great. First of all, thank you to Duke University for allowing me to have such a convoluted chapter structure to open up the book. Um, I really appreciate that they, or I, mean, I don't know, maybe I regret that they didn't knock some sense into me. Um, <laughs> oh, it doesn't read as convoluted,
1: actually. <laughs> okay, that's no, not at all. It's super, super clear.
0: Um, so yeah, so I mean, Something that's going on in this chapter that uh, took me a while to wrap my head around was what I was trying to do with combining ideas of narrative and ideas of landscape and the way, in fact, narrative gets read on to landscape. And so the work of Keith Basso and his um, idea of placemaking with the Western Apache and how uh, landscape becomes so much more than landscape, It, in fact, becomes a story that are, that orders um, lessons and norms and morals Um was hugely influent, influential in how I began to think about this chapter. And each each of these narratives is, in fact, ordered around a particular landscape that I encountered at the Mars Desert Research Station. And so for the astrogeological narrative, which, again, this chapter is like playing with space and time together, it actually takes us into the past and begins with A landscape that would have been similar to the one that I was encountering, but was encountered by um, astronauts, Apollo astronauts, as they trained for their trip to the moon. And since one of the things this chapter is asking is the is the extent to which a place on Earth can come to stand for a place elsewhere. I had to understand why it was okay, why it was seen as legit scientific practice for scientists to traipse around the Utah desert and pretend they were were on Mars. And in in fact, the origin of that kind of thinking took me back to – the early astrogeological training of Apollo astronauts, happening just south of where we were in the Mars Desert Research Station, as you know, we were in a more red-tinted desert, thinking about Mars, they were just south in more of a gray desert, thinking about the moon. And in both cases, there's this really interesting question of what actually you're studying, are you studying earth or are you studying the moon? And for the astronauts, when they got to the moon, were they seeing the moon or were they in fact seeing earth? There's this really great quote by one of the Apollo astronauts who, after having trained in the, American, the desert of the American West, gets to the moon and says, oh, this looks exactly like Arizona. Um, and so you have this really fun collapsing of place. Um, and so the astrogeological narrative, again, asks more than just how mars and utah or the moon and arizona might somehow be in conversation with each other but also looks for the kind of historical trace of what being in the american west has to say about the activity of space exploration and the extent to which yeah this image of the cowboy becoming astronaut and the um, the right stuff and the kind of imagination that maybe the geologists I was with at MDRS have about their own right stuff um, as explorers, both in, in the scientific work, but also in their imaginative work of other worlds, kind of all came together in this really, for me, fascinating way.
1: Awesome. So when we, um, as we explore the other kinds of stories here, um, areological, science fiction, um, we also get introduced to Martian blueberries. Um, I will just leave that out there for listeners. Um, you have to pick up a copy of the book to figure out what Martian blueberries are. Um, <laughs> listeners. They're fascinating. Um, and there's a really, really interesting, for anybody like me who loves reading science fiction, and specifically science fiction um, about uh, Mars and other planets, there's a really, really fascinating discussion of science fiction narratives and the way those are shaping placemaking in this context. Now the chapter ends by suggesting that there's an overarching narrative that organizes these multiple narratives, and that's a utopian narrative. Um, And this organizes the narratives, the imaginations, and the places at the research station. So Lisa, can you talk a little bit about this utopian narrative and the work that it's doing here?
0: Right. Well, I mean, space exploration, especially the imagination of settling and colonizing space is inherently utopian. It's, um, if you think kind of about Star Trek, in terms of the science fiction we were just talking about, it plays on this idea that, well, yeah, maybe you're going to stumble upon some really, you know, unpleasant other worlds, but there is perhaps these better worlds that are out there and that await us. And in fact, that in the face of all of the real challenges we face on Earth, what happens if we just left? What if we went and found another planet and got to start afresh? And all of this, of course, is a fantasy. Um, moving ourselves to Mars is not going to inherently solve the problems of the human race and the way the human race interacts with our surrounding environments and, and surrounding um, uh, surrounding organic uh players. Mm -hmm. Um, But it nonetheless persists. And I think especially when you have these activities happening in the desert spaces of the American West, you get that sense of blank slate and the possibility of starting afresh. And it just kind of fuels the enthusiasm that already underlies so many of um, the scientific dreamers that I encountered in my research.
1: So as we move from here to the second chapter, Mapping Mars in Silicon Valley, we move from an ethnography about a group or groups of people who are focused more on knowledge creation and toward a group that's focused more, as you say here, on knowledge dissemination. This is a chapter that takes us into the NASA Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley and the work of a small group known here as the Map Makers. Now, they're doing a lot of interesting stuff. Um, in particular, they're creating high-res 3D maps of Mars for Microsoft's WWT and Google Earth. Um, and this is a really another really interesting context here. So you describe in the chapter the ways that the map makers are presenting Mars um, in kind of... Th- three primary sorts of modes, right? They're presenting Mars as democratic and thus as accessible um, to all. They're presenting it as a place of experience. And this is exemplified by the 3Dness of the map. And they are presenting it as a space that's dynamic or a place that's dynamic. And thus, if it's dynamic, it's worthy of further study. Um, Through all of this work you show here, they're establishing Mars as a place and as a destination. Okay. So for you, Lisa, um, in terms of the work that you did um, in producing this chapter, right, in terms of the experience that you had working with these map makers, for you, what was particularly interesting um, and significant and important about that experience? And for you, um, what's perhaps most fascinating about what's going on in this second chapter about Mars?
0: Yeah. So um, I, I, so uh, I should, The chapter we just talked about was an ethnographic experience that was only over the course of two weeks. And in fact, I bookend these chapters with two kind of field visits. And in the middle are sandwiched two field sites I spent six months about each at. And so NASA, I spent about six months at. And um, throughout the whole time, these map makers were more or less working on creating this high-resolution 3D map of Mars for Microsoft's Worldwide Telescope Project project. And I was um, really nervous, actually, through a lot of this fieldwork that I wasn't witnessing anything that I might be able to talk about. You know, it was because these were computer scientists for the most part. What I found is I would go into the lab every day and they would be coding And so I had a hard time figuring out what I was supposed to be observing, what I was supposed to be doing. Um, And so I spent kind of the first few months in a little bit of a panic, all of a sudden realizing that I was no longer writing about planetary scientists. Instead, I was suddenly writing about computer scientists. I remember writing to my advisor um, across the coast and asking like, oh, my gosh, what should I be reading? I don't know anything about this kind of science. How do I how do I make sense of it? Um. But slowly I began to realize that what was actually very interesting was the fact, in fact, was the fact that they were computer scientists, that they came to NASA not because of um, an expertise in the planetary, but because of an enthusiasm for the planetary and an expertise in, in fact, something entirely different. And so that became the way for me to say, okay, well, in my other sites. I was looking at how people were forming an imagination of the planetary for their own science and their own work and understanding what happens now when a bunch of people who are slightly outside of the field attempt to translate this planetary imagination for a wider audience, especially because they had these partnerships with, um, with Microsoft and with Google. And as soon as I kind of saw this group of people as these really interesting intermediaries, suddenly the, the site, became fascinating. And the fact that their lives were spent looking at code that was producing these amazing imaginative landscapes, I, I found that disjunction really interesting, that you're kind of type, type, typing away with your shoulders hunched over looking at screens of what to me look like gibberish. And then someone else is interacting with what is being produced and experiencing Mars. And so there's this really cool just like construction, making Mars out of these lines of code that I found really fun.
1: So this idea of learning how to look, um, or specifically learning how to see, really nicely brings us into the next chapter, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the first two body chapters of the book uh, looked at or focused on Mars. The second two, the last two body chapters of the book, look at exoplanets. This is really, really interesting. So chapter three in particular takes us into exoplanetary research at MIT, and it follows the work of Sarah Seeger and her students and colleagues. Um, So to kind of get us started in this, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about Sarah Seeger, um, how you kind of developed this relationship and the nature of the kind of work that you were doing um, with her and her students and colleagues?
0: Yeah. So I began my work with the exoplanet astronomers in 2009. In 2009, almost no one I encountered knew what exoplanets were. Um, That has slowly declined, although there still are several out there. So just for a clarification, an exoplanet is a planet that is around a star other than our sun. When I began working with this group in 2009, a couple hundred exoplanets were known to exist. Today, several thousand are known to exist um, in our area of the solar system alone, not even just in our entire or in our, our area, I'm sorry, of the galaxy, not even in the entire galaxy, just our little our little local neighborhood. Um, and uh, this, again, gets me back to my roommate who was in this department and I was kind of asking her, well, what is the, you know, interesting planetary science happening now? And she said, oh, there's this new field of exoplanet astronomy. You should talk to our somewhat new, um, Sarah Seeger. And so, um, I approached one of Seeger's graduate students and got to, um, got to know Sarah, um, right at the time when her career was also at a precipice right now, she is, I would say famous, like science famous. She's gotten a MacArthur Genius Award. Um, She had a profile in the New York Times Magazine not too long ago. And she is just an enthusiastic, evangelical supporter of the kind of science she's doing and her quest to understand planets outside of our solar system. She was laying the groundwork for all this later success when I was working with her. Um, And it was really interesting to look at um, a science at its time of coming into its own. Um, Exoplanet astronomy is this new discipline, and there wasn't, because there was only a couple hundred planets known at that time, there was not a lot of data. And so what you got was all these really enthusiastic, devoted scientists reaching beyond the data, trying to almost will into the future that would come just a couple years later um, with the current amount of exoplanets we have now. And so um, Sarah Seeger, who's a theorist, was a really wonderful person to work with since she had the tools to really do this imaginative work to think about what the future of exoplanet astronomy might be.
1: So the chapter pays really careful attention to pedagogy and it follows how students acquire different ways of seeing under Seeger's guidance and also shows how visual practice is a worlding practice. Okay. So crucial to what's happening here in this chapter is this notion of worlding or world. So here, this brings us to a question, Lisa, what kind of work um, cultural and otherwise, as you describe here is involved in describing and maintaining something as a world. Like for you, mm-hmm. what's important for us to understand about the kind of work that's involved here?
0: So this gets back again to this question of why we care about planets. And especially why do we care? I mean, we can kind of guess why we care about Mars. It's our neighbor, it's close. Maybe we actually will go there sometime relatively soon. Why do we care about these relatively insignificant planets Globs of rock, dust, and gas that are orbiting dozens or hundreds of light years away from us. And that has, I think that necessarily gets back to the ability for these scientists to first for themselves see these planets as worlds and as places and second to be able to make that imagination the planetary imagination the worlding imagination something stable that can be passed on to their students um, and that can even be circulated in the community to get people their colleagues excited about these potential worlds and only after that to translate it further into into the public so the way i went about um, in this chapter with Seeger's group is not thinking about the planets that were more, most obviously worlds, perhaps, with ones that are like Earth, but instead taking some of these really cool, crazy alien planets, ones that are the size of Jupiter but orbiting closer to the star than Mercury, or ones that are so hot that their surface would be molten lava, all these worlds that are utterly uninhabitable by humans, and to ask how these nonetheless become Worlds for these scientists, and to understand how it happens through the scientific process, not just as auxiliary, let's make these things cool that the public is going to like, but how in crafting papers, in talking about recent discoveries, the kinds of conversations that happen allow scientists to begin to ask themselves and each other the question, what would it be like to be on this planet? And that automatically gets them thinking in terms of place and therefore in terms of worlds
1: awesome. It's like, so you show here um, in this chapter that one of the ways that this is happening is through learning how to see. And you take us into three different ways of seeing um, that you're kind of experiencing in terms of the pedagogy and the training here. There's seeing with the system, seeing beyond the signal and seeing through language. And just incidentally, I love the fact that here and also um, in the next chapter, prepositions become so important. <laughs> i I'm- (laughs) Obsessed with prepositions right now for other reasons. And this is something I totally focused in on. And we need to talk prepositions um, one day. Maybe not right now, but we totally need to do that. Fabulous. So we'll have a drink and we'll talk prepositions or have coffee or something.
0: I'm sure so many people would want to be part of that conversation.
1: Seriously. Okay. So, funding body person who's listening to this right now, like chat us up, send us an email, give us funding, and we will make the most fabulous preposition conference you've ever. (laughs) heard okay but in the meantime let's talk about seeing with seeing beyond and seeing through Mm -hmm. Um, so seeing in terms of describing um, ways in which um, you're learning and your the students are also learning to see with the system you describe how it's a process of learning to see how data contain evidence of a star and an exoplanet can you talk a little bit about that about seeing with the system and learning how to do that
0: yeah um gosh, so I loved working talking with exoplanet astronomers and asking them about the planets that they care about, and then taking out a scientific paper and showing me what effectively is a straight line with a little dip of a u in it and saying that's a planet that little little dip um and all of the all of the um graphs, these little dips with the U's that are these beautiful straight lines that you encounter in papers do not look that way when it's raw data downloaded from the telescope, because often these are space-based telescopes, but even ground-based telescopes, you're still downloading data. Um, And so I worked with undergraduates just to understand how on earth you get to that Beautiful U curve from data that looks so horrendously messy that it's impossible to imagine how anyone can separate the signal from the noise. And um, it was it was like a I worked with these undergrad two undergraduates for a summer, and it was one frustration after another. And we spent collectively the three of us plus seeker advising us spent three months attempting to make one graph. And it was a graph that we already knew existed. So we simply wanted to see if we could recreate what other scientists have done. And the only way we were able to do that is by repeated visitors, postdocs who are at Harvard or visiting MIT, that came in and told us how to see the data to um, to say, okay, well, you what you need to understand about this data is, Why you get these solar flares, and that's because of the orbit of the satellite that's collecting it. And so you begin to understand that the data contain not only the star and the planet that you're interested in, but they contain all sorts of other things. Traces of the instrument, um, you know, peculiarities of the universe. And to figure out that there's a planet there is not as easy as just looking through a telescope and saying, hey, I see a planet. But in fact, requires Processing and work, and you have to learn how to see this data as a planet. So, in
1: terms of describing how um, to see beyond the signal or how learning how to see beyond the signal works, you describe the problem of modeling atmospheres and compositions of exoplanets, right, as being kind of crucial to this. This is so interesting, Lisa. Can you talk about this part of um, what's going on in the chapter?
0: Yeah, so the seeing with was all about um, how do you kind of understand the instrumentation and um, all the noise that lies in data to get a beautiful, clear, singular picture. Seeing beyond, so now you have, okay, cool, a planet exists. Well, if we really want it to be a world, we have to know something about what it is. And so there's a desire to know what the atmosphere is, what the surface is, et cetera. But that one single beautiful line is only can only tell us so much. So I then, after working with these undergraduates, worked with um, worked with graduate students who were who already knew how to see with the system. And we're now working with Seeger on strategies for seeing beyond the signal, for trying to take this singular, beautiful line and making it messy and multiple. And 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 what you get is a game of probabilities and statistics. Given the scant data, what 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 is the realm of possibility of kinds of worlds that this planet can be and how can we represent them in one single graph? And so I kind of was repeatedly awestruck by the graphs that these graduate students would show me that had these beautiful colors and blobs and overlays. And the little U-shaped graph all of a sudden was this complex challenging hard to read multiple um, graph of probabilities and you kind of begin to look at those graphs and say here are all all of a sudden these graphs no longer contain one planet but all the different possibilities that this planet that this world might be and um, these students who were doing it were also playing with novel visualization strategies within the community and so they were highly um highly scrutinized, highly debated. So you get a little bit of um, like scientific controversy about letting in new ways of seeing to this carefully guarded discipline as well.
1: So after learning to see with the system and to see beyond the signal, we've talked about um, ways in which this involves learning to see Again, um, how kind of data include evidence of a star, of an exoplanet, include evidence um, that helps us model atmospheres, understand the internal composition potentially, um, possibly of exoplanets. You also talk about learning how to see through language. Um, And you make the point here that language brings worlds into being, especially perhaps through extensive uses of metaphor in this Mm -hmm. context. So can you talk a little bit about that, Lisa?
0: Yeah. So ultimately what you get is a bit of frustration in this community, especially more so at the time that I was working with them than say now, and there's a lot more of it data and planets, which is again, this desire to have worlds that we can understand and imagine being on. And uh, so when you're, when the groups that I was with were talking about planets very naturally they compared them. The initial way of doing so is to compare them to planets in our own solar system to talk about hot Jupiters. Those are the Jupiters orbiting super close to the star or super earths that are just a little bit larger, um, larger than earth, but might potentially be like us. And I was really struck with one conversation I had with an astronomer who talked about, um, how he and, um, another person, um, simultaneously published papers theorizing a kind of planet that might exist. And this was a planet that is commonly called an ocean world. So a planet that is covered with water with no landmass visible. And he said how um, his um, competitor, let's say wrote a paper describing the um, how an ocean world might exist. And he wrote a paper talking about how a volatile rich world might exist, which was his scientific way of saying ocean planet. And his paper never caught on, whereas the ocean planet paper has, you know, hundreds of citations. And um, I was talking to him about my theories of placemaking. And for him, that clicked as to why his language didn't catch on, whereas the other language did. And it's actually really funny. After all this conversation, I was like reading the Wikipedia page on ocean planets. And I saw like a reference to the volatile rich planet paper. And I looked at like the authoring history of Wikipedia. And sure enough, that astronomer had gone on and like (laughs) put in his citation. So I kind of love that.
1: Also, there should, um, as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing there should be two bands, um, one (laughs) called the Ocean Worlds, and also somebody please make a band called the Hot Jupiters. And I will buy your CDs and listen to your songs, the Hot Jupiters.
0: Okay, so, i think we, sh- we can have yeah. a whole um a whole galaxy of exoplanet named bands
1: maybe at our preposition and a CS <laughs> yeah. conference we can like have a little karaoke night or something and like call ourselves the hot jupiters and it'll be fabulous Perfect. and it can it will totally be funded
0: the <laughs> GJ the gj 1214b superstars
1: excellent <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs>
0: So there are
1: even more prepositions to come, um, which I love. And this happens in the fourth chapter, um, which is also about exoplanetary research. Um, And this is a chapter called Inhabiting Other Earths. Um, So we've moved now from narrating to mapping to visualizing. And here we have inhabiting as a way of placemaking. Chapter four considers the search for Earth-like Exoplanets, and we've just been talking about kind of you know what an exoplanet is, etc. So it also explores what it means to inhabit somewhere, primarily tracking two significant senses of inhabiting. And you talk about um, senses in which inhabiting means um, sort of change, or senses in which modes of inhabiting rather are changing. For astronomical practice, and you take us through that, and also um, a sense of inhabiting where habitability is constructed by astronomers as a scientific pursuit. I think that's particularly, um, totally fascinating. Mm. So the chapter takes us into three different settings and three different kinds of settings where observation and habitation are importantly connected. And you show us the ways in which astronomers who are themselves searching for habitable planets are inhabiting these three kinds of observatories. And observatories, um, they're they're very different ways of being, right, an observatory. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that um, in very different ways. So the first one um, is a context in where you're looking at observing at Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in a mountaintop setting in Chile. Okay, so just to kind of um, set the stage here, Lisa, can you talk about this setting? Kind of, can you kind of give us a mm-hmm. sense, right, of this um, place and what we need to know about this place in order to then understand what's important about inhabiting an observation that are happening in this place? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I went to um, Sarah Tololo with um, a astro- Yale astronomer, Deborah Fisher, who had a project looking around our closest star for an earth like exoplanet. And uh, I met her in Cambridge and asked, Hey, can I go to, Chile with you and she very kindly said yes and it was really interesting because leading up to that trip I was interviewing other astronomers and saying that I had this observation trip coming up with and they were all kind of trying to temper my expectations basically saying oh you know it really is boring to be at the observatory like don't get too excited and I was very excited about the prospect of being bored on a beautiful mountaintop in (laughs) in Chile Um, and what I you know kind of went there um so what I, I I mean, honest truly, this is probably my favorite chapter and I just love thinking about and writing about it because there is so much romanticism in both the search for an an earth like our own and also in going to a mountaintop observatory where you have this like myth of um communing with nature and understanding the vastness of the um, cosmos that you as a single human being are trying and grappling with and struggling with to study. Um, and the scientist was totally right. Being there is utterly boring. Um, which most astronomers will tell you, yeah, you arrive and it's beautiful and it's glorious, but then you spend about six hours every night or more, um, tapping on a computer in a control in a windowless control room in like the belly of the beast and not really even seeing the telescope, let alone seeing, um, the stars because it's also also digitized. Um, and so, so the romanticism of the mountain didn't really happen in observing nights. And, but I was still expecting like, Oh, but no, but you know, Deborah and her students are going to be talking about how important their work is because they're finding another world. This is like humans biggest discovery. Um, and that wasn't even talked about either. Instead, it was about how the data were coming in clean and, you know, uh, mechanics of observing as opposed to maybe the quest that was, um, that was being hoped for. So I just loved all of the contradictions and expectations um, the, and the way that perhaps these bigger romantic notions do and often don't map onto the real practice of doing science and being an astronomer.
1: I mean, even the images in this part of the chapter, right? You turn um, for listeners who have a copy of the book is on 167. You turn from this image on 167, which is Deborah Fisher on the catwalk. Okay. And it's even called Mm -hmm. a catwalk and this like amazing, like, oh my gosh, who wouldn't want to be there? Like walking on the catwalk. Um, of this telescope and you look out and it's this gorgeous landscape and oh my gosh, like how completely sublime. And then you turn <laughs> the page and it's like, oh, go, there, go there. oh, wait, you know, and there's just like a bunch of wires and um, a spectrometer and like all these machines and it doesn't quite look so sublime, right? So, but I <laughs> yeah. still totally want to go. Um, yeah. Now, one of the really important points that you're making here, um, and this totally um, speaks to what you were just talking about, is that um, it's really important that astronomers are living and working on the premises, even though the work done at the observatory is removed from the act of observing. Um, this actually kind of makes um, and makes a difference in terms of what's going on. And that has to do uh, perhaps more with, um, kind of the socializing and the social aspect of what's going on, even though it might not immediately, right. Seem like that would be important. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Deborah went with her graduate student, two graduate students and me were her um, kind of entourage at this one particular observing run. And um, the way that the days or the nights would go is we would kind of spend all night at the telescope, go back around breakfast time and sleep, and then around lunchtime would wake up and go to a community cafeteria and have our our um, breakfast and go back to our rooms, nap a little bit more, do some work, and then um, get dinners or lunches to go and go up to the mountaintop to observe for the night. Um, and it was all those like interstitial parts where we were eating lunch or breakfast or dinner, whatever meal it was in the cafeteria. Not only were we talking with our own research group, but we were also talking with the other research groups who were there observing at different telescopes, because on Cerro Tololo, there's a number of different um, telescopes being observed at, at any one time. And there's also the whole a really interesting, um, you know, labor collective there of Chileans who are maintaining the premises. So, um, kind of the labor of preparing our food for us, um, cleaning up after us in the dorms, um, but also the technical labor of making sure the telescopes run smoothly. And in fact, that becomes one of the most important social connections that compel astronomers to continue to go to the observatory even when it's not strictly needed, which is to create a relationship, a rapport, as anthropologists might call it, between the often American or European astronomer and the Chilean technician who's involved, who um, is in charge of understanding how to move the telescope from one stellar target to the next. So, you know, Deborah would then go away from the... um, away from the telescope but she would trust that her technician would carry out the observation plan as expected and you know be the one to download the data and and um beam it back to her so to speak and so having a relationship with the, tech, with the telescope operator becomes a really important social way of ensuring that you can trust the data that ultimately you're going to get. And this, of course, relates to a lot of really wonderful discussions in the history of science on invisible technicians and the fact that often these telescope operators aren't co-authors but are thanked in the acknowledgments and et cetera. But that's a really important social, um, social relationship that one has to be at the observatory to really cultivate.
1: So, you also take us through um, processes of observing with the Kepler satellite, right so this is observing mm-hmm. with um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of kind of inhabiting that's happening there
0: mm-hmm so whereas Cerro Tololo is a ground based observatory, Kepler, which is what is responsible for the boom in exoplanets for us to have a thousand or two thousand um, discovered since um uh since its launch in 2009, which again was just I right as I was doing my field work. And, um, because Kepler is in space, um, you actually can't go there. So you can't observe with it in the same way you would with a telescope like Cerro Tololo. Um, and so instead, what you have to learn how to do is understand the, um, the system. In this case, I talk about inhabiting a sociotechnical network. So I went to the first the um, first science team meeting in which the commissioning data of Kepler were being um, presented. And that means the data that uh, are not going to be used for science necessarily, but kind of calibrate the instrument and tell the scientists that the instrument is operating in the way they expect it to be. And um, one of the really interesting conversations that began to happen was a a uh, a conflict of sort between the NASA scientists and the university scientists who were affiliated with the project because they were worried they weren 't going to have access to the data before it was publicly released to scientists who weren 't involved in kepler's um in kepler 's deployment because um Oh, this is, sorry, this is going to get really complicated, but basically NASA, NASA um, data is all public because it's publicly funded. And so there's usually um, a, a period in which only NASA and affiliated university scientists can use the data and then it gets released. And it was starting to look like the release date was not going to give the, Kepler science, the Kepler-affiliated university scientists much time to access it. And it further became apparent that the only way they were gonna be able to access it for the time being was to be at NASA Ames Research Center, which is where Kepler was being operated from, which is where I did my map make, maker's work. So there are connections here. Um, and so what this meant was kind of un- trying to understand the socio-technical system in a very different way And it's all about getting data. And what was clear is that there was a different set of social arrangements needed to get data from the ground-based observatory than there was from the Kepler Space Observatory.
1: Mm -hmm. So what or how is this happening um, in a different way in this third form of observatory that you bring us into, which is actually really unusual, right? Um, So I want want to ask you to talk uh, very briefly about this because the third kind of observatory – That you talk about is not exactly an observatory in a strict sense, right? But it's Mm -hmm. it's really, really fascinating um, nonetheless. And this is um, the process of observing from an Archimedean point. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a point um, imagined by theoreticians, as you describe here, who ask what Earth would look like as an exoplanet. So what's going on Mm -hmm. in this third um, form of inhabiting,
0: Lisa? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if we attend to the prepositions, um, (laughs) we observed at kind of this physical presence at Cerro Tololo. We observed with the Kepler telescope, trying to understand the system with which you would need to access the data. And then this third point is observing from. Um, and kind of using from to signal some kind of remove from the kind of observing that happens at Cerro Tololo. So it's observing from the Archimedean point. And the Archimedean point is a, an image that I pick up from um, Hannah Arendt in her imagination of um, the danger of becoming disconnected from Earth like perhaps astronauts might, in the near future when she was writing, such that um, such that they turn around and see Earth from a distance. And in just before Apollo was flown, that was something that a lot of philosophers were very worried about, what that vantage of seeing Earth from beyond would do. Would it be ultimately alienating? Would it disconnect us from the humanness um, uh, of ourselves? And a lot of people have written about how, in fact, seeing Earth from this Archimedean point, from a point beyond where we are, was an incredibly um, important um, moment in seeing Earth as a planet and therefore understanding the responsibility we as humans have to our planet. And so the And so that happened for Apollo, but then there becomes this question of, well, we no longer actually have access, humans no longer have access to the Archimedean point. We're no longer, our space program, our human spaceflight is no longer far enough away that humans themselves can embody an Archimedean point and look back on Earth. However, we can, of course, do this through technology and through satellites. And so there was this really interesting genre of theorizing, is how I thought about it, within astronomy, which would take, satellite imagery of earth from a bit of a distance and ask, you know, if the quest is to find an earth elsewhere, well, the best, um, the best way we have of testing, whether we can actually see earth elsewhere is to say, well, can we see earth from a little bit further away from this Archimedean point? And so um, there were just so many interesting ways in which scientists would work with earth data to imagine what, it might look like if earth were an exoplanet and they did this both with data, but also just kind of theorizing, okay, what does earth look like from a great distance? And that just seemed like such a really interesting, um, different imagination of observation and seeing than, say, looking from earth's surface outwards, it's looking from outwards back towards earth's surface.
1: So how does this all help us understand or help us kind of change how we understand notions of home um, mm. as they connect right um, to all these
0: issues? What a great question. Um, yeah. The search for earth. I, I wonder in that last chapter, what the meaning behind uh, or in the cha- the fourth chapter, what the meaning behind the search for earth is. And one, possible reading that I offer is the extent to which it's a search for home, um, and how, ha- and what we mean by home. So what is home as a particular kind of place? And if we allow the idea of home to be stretched to the scale of the planetary, what does it mean to think of earth as our planetary home and yet to be in search of another potential planetary home? And, um, Kind of going back to the overarching romanticism, which I think infuses this search for another Earth, I ask if there isn't a nostalgia behind this search, that kind of looking for another Earth-like planet is looking for Earth at its most pristine, this almost Edenic Earth that we're grappling with having lost Um, ourselves with our with the current environmental situation, um, living in the Anthropocene of our present Earth? Can't we find an Earth that is natural with a capital N that is our home in this nostalgic, Edenic way?
1: Now we're about at the end of our time or at the time where we're going to be moving um, to our conclusion, but there's also a conclusion to the book, Navigating the Infinite Cosmos, that we won't have time to get into um, in any detail. Given that, is there anything in particular about the conclusion or in the conclusion to the book, Lisa, that as we move to our conclusion, um, Mm -hmm. you'd like to mention or highlight for listeners?
0: Um, Sure. Yeah. So the The conclusion, I mean, going back to one of the first questions about how this is different from the dissertation, the conclusion is completely different. And it was in response to reviewers asking me, well, what are what are why? Why are astronomers, as you argue, making place? And I I throughout the book give the epistemological reason. I kind of argue why place matters for a lot of um, in terms of making fact, making places, finding salience in the community. Um, and this question of why though was such a hard one for me, for me to answer, but I nonetheless give it a shot. And the answer I try to give is that, well, humanity has always, or humans, um, in Western kind of civilization and culture, um, and others I'm sure have asked if we're it, is it just earth? Um, Are there other worlds beyond our own? Are there other beings on those worlds? And every time this question is brought up, it's for a different reason. And so the conclusion kind of walks through in a very brief way of of, um, summarizing millennia of this question, um, different possible reasons for asking this question in the past. And then why are we asking it in the present? And my answer there is um, reflecting on some of the, Current ways of being on Earth and um, nervousness about disconnection and um, globalization and mobility that kind of being in a digital world has raised within us. And does looking for place beyond our own home planet somehow tap into this question of a loneliness that we're feeling today And if we know what's out there, that there's something else, does that offer an opportunity to alleviate that loneliness? So I kind of end up talking about this idea of cosmic loneliness in the chapter, borrowing the language of the astronomers that I um, talk with and people who have written about this.
1: And is there anything else um, as we kind of move to our close about the book that didn't come up or that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Of course, there's a ton of things, right? <laughs> um, But is there anything in particular that you want to just kind of flag or put on the table for listeners?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this was such a lovely conversation. Um, I think that one final point maybe that um, I would like readers of this book to, um, to kind of experience as they go through it, which might not always be the most obvious thing, is the way in which um, – This book proceeds as a journey that kind of collapses on itself. So um, in one sense, we're constantly moving away from Earth. So we begin on Earth in Utah, um, standing in for Mars. We then go to mapping, which kind of unearths Mars a little bit from the previous chapter, and then out into these alien exoplanets. But by the last chapter, we're looking at scientists who are in search of another Earth and who have themselves re embedded themselves within the observatory um, in earth itself. So that kind of um, circularity and the attention to kind of the ethnographic field sites and the ways that they themselves kind of play with being on earth and not quite being on earth um, is uh, just kind of a a structural thing that I think is, um, I don't know, a fun part of the book, (laughs) which might be another kind of map or guide through it.
1: And now that the book is out, what's uh, next for you? What are you currently working on?
0: I am currently working on research I'm really excited about. So I'm at the very beginning of my next project, which is going to be about virtual reality. Mm. And um, my first book, it's all about placemaking and the relationship with scientific practice. And I was when I was thinking about what I wanted to work on next um, – I was asking, well, what are other sciences or technologies that are making us rethink or stretching the way we think about place in perhaps a a new and unique way? And I just, virtual reality was kind of, is kind of blowing up. And I was really drawn into the way these technologists imagine this as a technology that can transport someone to elsewhere. So, um I'm kind of moving away from these large physical, you know, planetary scale, um, galactic scale places and looking at um, the virtual places that VR is opening up um, and continuing to think about how human being gets interestingly reconfigured with that kind of work.
1: That sounds amazing, too. So when that's done, also let me know and we'll talk about that. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And in the meantime, um, thank you so much. This was so great. Um, I love the book. Congratulations and best of
0: luck with the new research. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us and come back again and check us out next time.